Live from Utrecht, this is Bitcoin. Explained. Hey, Shors. What's up? How's life in the Mac Drive? Excellent. Well, it's the Mac Walk now, I guess, because, you know. You don't even have a car anymore. No, you work there, right? We both work there now. Oh, you, work mean, there? you mean life uh, from the uh, the Mac Drive. Yeah, no, it's great. I actually used to work at McDonald's in my teenage years. Okay. It was kind of fun. I was more into newspaper delivery and that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, sure. So I got a question. Great. Uh, Tell from me. From one of our listeners from Finai Shetty. It's a question from a while ago, actually, but we're finally going to address it before okay. we get into the actual episode. By the way, the actual episode is about Jameson Slops' hard fork research. So our listeners also know this now. But we're first going to address a quick question from one of our listeners, which is, Shores, are you ready? I'm ready. So the tweet is, <laughs> curious on how the DNS seeders work when the node is set up as an onion node. I set up a prune node and all I had was dot onion outgoing connections. Am I querying the DNS seeders for that information or do I get that information from the hard-coded file? Sure. Well, assuming this tweet was not written three years ago. Um, it was written like two months ago. Okay, because uh, with Tor v2 it was a little bit different, but now that we, we had an episode where we explained the difference between Tor version 2 and Tor version 3. Uh, but with Tor version 3, it's very safe to say that you did not get that from the DNS seeds. So what happens is when your node starts up, it will query the DNS seeds to see if there's other nodes out there. Um, but if you if you configure your node to only connect to Tor nodes, then it won't find anything because the DNS seeds are not actually telling you where the Tor nodes are. It only knows where the IPv4 nodes are and where the IPv6 nodes are. So that means if you, know, if you didn't run your node before like ever uh without tor then the only way you would have found those onion addresses that you connected to now is because you you found one that was hard coded in the source code so basically if the dns seeds don't give you anything useful which would be the case right if you're asking them for tor addresses but you're not you're only getting ipv4 and ipv6 addresses then your node is going to fall back to some hard coded tor addresses that are in the source code and if any of those still exist it will connect to them, and then it will get a bunch of other uh, Tor services from that first connection, and then you'll connect to those. Okay. Vinay, I hope that helps. Sure, let's get into the main topic of this episode. All right. Oh, and if any other listeners, uh, you know, if you have questions or if you have an idea for a topic we can discuss for an entire episode, feel free to let us know on Twitter. I'm at Aaron Van W, and Shores is at Provost. That's right. And if you want the answer a bit quicker than three weeks, you should probably also ask Bitcoin Stack Exchange. All right. Shores, on to the main topic. All right. So, Jameson Lop wrote another excellent blog post. We've discussed one of his blog posts before. I think that was Syncing Old Notes, mm -hmm. episode 55. Cool. I'm pretty sure it was 55. I'm actually almost entirely sure it was 55. And this time he published a blog post called Has Bitcoin Ever Hard Forked? So it discusses whether Bitcoin has ever hard forked, uh, obviously. Okay. Sure, first of all, I'll just ask you right now, what is a hard fork? Well, as, as Lop actually points out in the blog post, it's a bit of an ambiguous term, but generally what we mean is it's a loosening of the rules I mean, it's only a fork if something actually happens. 
or at least that's what we could debate about. But generally, the difference between a hard fork and a soft fork is to say in a hard fork, you're loosening the rules. So for example, you're mighty allowing two megabyte blocks instead of one megabyte blocks. And a soft fork would be tightening the rules. So you might say, we're only going to allow smaller blocks. And the, this matters in terms of you know whether or not you need to upgrade very quickly to be able to follow the new rules. Yeah, that's maybe a little bit of a confusing example because Bitcoin did have a soft fork to bigger blocks a couple of years ago through SegWit. Well, that also points but, out that uh, the idea that uh, hard forks are bad and soft forks are good is, is not a great, like, it's not super accurate either because you can do all sorts of things with a soft fork that you think you can only do with a hard fork uh, and vice versa. Right. But yeah, the point here is that the general sort of classic definition of a hard fork is it loosens or removes rules while a soft fork tightens or adds rules. Yeah. That's the very general definition. And the thing behind that is that because if you're running an old node, you're going to check the old rules, basically. And if the new rules are more strict than whatever the other nodes are doing, you'll still approve it because you still have a looser uh, interpretation. Yeah, so especially if miners are enforcing the soft fork rules, then all the old nodes will still accept that chain as well. While with the yep. hard fork, that's not necessarily the case. Now, what Jameson does in this lop, uh, blog post, <laughs> in this lop post, post yes. <laughs> is um, first of all, he proposes a stricter definition for hard fork. So he kind of adds, um, he, he adds to factors to what we should consider a hard fork or what he considers a hard fork and then he analyzes then the second thing he does is he analyzes the history of bitcoin to see if there have have been any hard forks okay right so what are shall i just tell you what are what what his new proposed definitions are yeah uh, that's probably a good idea because i didn't memorize them okay so he he may he classifications he he proposes First of all, so a hard fork loosens the rules, but what Jameson suggests is that it should really only be considered a hard fork if these looser rules are ever used, right? So let's. Okay. So you made the example uh, of a block size limit increase, so I'll run with that example. Yep. And let's say 10 megabytes, just to make it clear that we're talking about a hard fork here. So if a hard fork rule change is made that allows for 10 megabytes blocks, but no 10 megabyte block is mined at all, all blocks are still one megabyte or two megabytes under SegWit, then these looser rules are never actually used. So the older nodes, they wouldn't even notice that a hard fork happened at all. They would still just follow the chain. Yeah. And therefore under LOP's definition, which I think is a reasonable definition, a hard fork never actually happened. Right, so you're risking a hard fork, but there's not an actual hard fork. Yeah, so it's only a hard fork if the rules are actually used. Yep. I can give an actual example of that, of something that happened fairly recently. Okay. Actually, we'll go over all of the examples later. Yeah. Is that what we'll do? Yeah. Let's let's uh, okay. first uh, do the second rule. Okay. Or yeah, the heuristic. Yeah, so the, the second classification is what I'm going with. Uh, or what Lob is going with actually is implicit versus explicit, and that essentially means was it intended to be a rule change, or was it basically just a bug? Right, but I would say a bug could still cause a hard fork, but it's definitely a different kind of thing to deal with, right? If if the network 
Because the one of the reasons you're worried about a hard fork is because it can split the network. And when that happens, you want to know, like, okay, is this split because we intended to change some of the rules, or is this split some freak accident that we should fix? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just explaining the classifications here. So right now, we've all be, always been saying, you know, a hard fork, and we just gave the definition of that. And LOP is suggesting we should make it more specific. What, what are we talking about exactly? Is it, was it actually triggered or not? If not, it probably shouldn't even be considered a hard fork. And when I say triggered, I mean, were the new rules used? Yeah. Well, was there a block mind that, you know, used the new rules? And then the second classification, was it intentional or not? Mm-hmm. Okay, then LOP goes, so that's the first half of the, or that, that's sort of the new proposal for, that's how we should think about hard forks more specifically. And then in the second part of the blog post, he goes over, I think, uh, seven consensus changes in Bitcoin's history that could be considered hard forks under any of these, in any of these newer categories that I just gave, of which five are hard forks that were never triggered. In other words, they were arguably not hard forks at all. And then there was one implicit hard fork. So and hard fork that was kind of just a bug and that wasn't intended to be there and one explicit hard fork so there's yeah, so one case where the rules were intentionally expanded and also somebody made use of those newly expanded rules exactly so in the sort of purest definition of a hard fork it only happened once so it was like you said it was intended to happen and it actually happened that only happened once oh there's one other thing we should discuss which lop also mentioned and which I forgot. So there's one other thing that people call hard forks. I've never done that in my writing, but that's fork coins. So that's like Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin Gold or whatever. We've had Bitcoin do- Pizza, Bitcoin Pizza Classic. We've had yeah. dozens, if not hundreds of these. So under some definitions of hard forks, you could consider these hard forks. I've never done that. I, I think that if you intentionally create a new coin if it's obvious that that's what's going to happen if you're obviously going to split the blockchain and the, and you're going to create a new token that will have a new ticker and that can be traded against the original then i i don't think that should even be thought of as a hard fork even that that's i mean it depends i guess and it's in the eye of the beholder right i think with most of the forks of bitcoin it was pretty obvious that they were just forks uh, you could call them forks or airdrops or something like that. I, I, would I go guess, for fork coins, yeah. Yeah, but for example, in the case of Ethereum, it's a lot more ambiguous. You know, if the entire community considers the current Ethereum to be Ethereum and the Ethereum Classic to be something else, um, you know. But that's because I guess they also have a different philosophy around hard forks in general. They have um, a different philosophy. They actually have a literal registered trademark you know, so the, the Ethereum Foundation can decide what must be called Ethereum. So it's it's that's that's one of the biggest differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's centralized in that way. Yeah. Someone actually gets to make that decision. And in Bitcoin, we don't have that. So we need to sort of come to some kind of consensus on what language you use. Yeah. In any case, like, yeah, if the goal is to create two separate coins, then that's that's not the scenario that we're talking about here. Yeah, I would not consider that a hard fork, and neither does uh, James and Lop, at least in his blog post. Okay, so now we've we that's out of the way. Four coins is not what we're talking about, and then we categorized f- different types of hard forks. And Lop says there have been seven, based on his research, of which five were never triggered. 
so they arguably weren't hard forks at all. One was implicit, one was explicit. And now we're going to go over them. Is that right? Sounds good. Okay, let's do it. So let's start with... Uh, we're going to start with the five hard forks that were never triggered, as does LOP. And I think this is where your expertise comes in, Shores. You're, you're, you can explain to our listeners what these five events okay. were is that right i will do my best i mostly studied the uh the final example where there was most arguably a hard fork but um we'll okay. see if i remember the other five okay so first the first one was uh satoshi changed best chain selection logic oh so yeah that's that's bitcoin uh 0.2 yeah that was so. a fun one right so from uh I wasn't there, and I haven't not actually looked at the change, but my understanding is that initially what Satoshi did was just saying, well, if there's more blocks, that must mean that that is the right chain to go to, whereas now we would consider the most proof-of-work, the most cumulative proof-of-work to be the correct chain to go to. Um, that's yeah. definitely a big change, and I think that was the intention, too, if, if, you know, from the white paper, but it was imp in implemented incorrectly in the beginning. Well, was that intention in the white paper? I don't think so. So I think the I think well, it was like one CPU, one vote. So if you extrapolate that, you would say that the yeah. more CPU power you have, the more votes you have. And the problem with the longest chain True. is that you can have a very high difficulty, but then the difficulty goes down because fewer people are mining. Um, and you might end up with lots and lots of blocks at a very low difficulty. Uh, and some obvious attacks because you can fake the timestamps and things like that. Yeah, that was definitely the philosophy in the white paper, but I think the way it was explained in the white paper, and anyway, it's been a while since I read I'm it. I'm sure he would have used the word longest, and I think as a first approximation, that's fine. But if you really want to compare two chains, you, you don't just want to look at the number of blocks. You want to make sure that they actually have work. Exactly, yeah. So before, so apparently Bitcoin, the very first version of Bitcoin, they just looked at the longest chain. That is essentially the highest block number is the chain that all nodes will converge on. And that was changed later to look at the most accumulated proof of work, which is not technically a hard fork. Like it's not a loosening of the rules, but it is a, completely it's a complete change of the rules. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's hard to see what would happen. And I don't know if there's any documentation whether anything actually did happen whether he correctly anticipated this would become a problem or whether there were some really long chains with low proof of work out there that we just don't know about. Yeah, well, uh, Jameson Lop at least hasn't found any evidence that this was ever triggered. That's why it's in this category. Yeah, just so, keep in so mind that the evidence... according to him, there was uh, never any, uh, any change. Right, but keep in mind that such evidence would only exist on a forum or in some like very, very old Bitcoiners node log file. Yeah, especially um, so because Bitcoin version 2 was probably released 2009 still, or what do you think? Yeah, I would say so 2009 or 2010. Yeah, so there were basically probably 10 people paying attention, something like that, mm -hmm. if that. That and the NSA. Right, of course. Yo, what is going on, guys? We are proud to have Voltage as a sponsor of this episode. How many of you developers out there have wanted a streamlined infrastructure provider for your particular project? Well, I'll tell you what, Voltage is the Bitcoin infrastructure provider you have been looking for that makes building on Bitcoin quick and easy, whether it's Bitcoin nodes, Lightning nodes, BTC pay, and so much more. But don't take it from me. Just ask the guys over at Amboss, Sphinx, Podcast Index, and Thunder Games, and so many others that you guys already know and love. 
Their enterprise-grade products make it fast and easy to build, deploy, and scale your next project. So make it easy on yourself. Even normie plebs can use the dashboard or API. Don't wait before the next block confirmation. Let your team focus on building great products and let Voltage handle all the rest. Voltage is your go-to zero management Bitcoin infrastructure solution. Okay, the next one is um, Opfair. You know what Opfair is? Yeah, Opfair is a, is a fun one. It's not named after Roger Ver. It was actually before he was involved. Um, so what No, I don't. I've, was it? 3.6? I mean, it was in there from the beginning, right? That's probably before uh, Roger Ver was involved. Yeah, you're right. So basically what Opfair did was it would uh, use the version of the protocol or the version, kind of like the version of the software in, as a part of the script. So you could send somebody money and saying, okay, you can redeem this if the software version is two. And so you would be running software version two and you would just take these coins and say, okay, I'm happy. My software version is two. And then I would wait a while and, um, and then software version would maybe be three or the miner might be running version three and I would send the same transaction to that miner and they would be like, no, this transaction is not actually valid. So you, you create a fork because whether a transaction is valid depends on which version of the software you're running. So that was obviously uh, not a very good security uh, thing. Right. So opfer that opcode was just removed entirely from the protocol. Yeah, though that sounds like a soft fork to me. So I'm not sure why. No, removing it would be a hard fork, right? No, you're limiting the rules. You're saying you cannot use this rule anymore. Um, so maybe there was something more subtle going on. But just generally, when you disable an opcode, which has been done countless times, you're basically saying this opcode can no longer be used, so you're limiting the number of transactions that are valid, which is a soft fork. But maybe there was something more subtle. Wait, so why do you think LOP lists as a hard fork? Um, well, there's two possibilities, actually. Um, one is that maybe the change was not to make it illegal to use op eval, but it, maybe it would have... Sorry, opver. Uh, but maybe it would have been interpreted as meaning it's always valid, in which case you are increasing the number of valid scripts. But the other option is that what he was trying to say is the the use of Opfer could have caused many hard forks at many times. Because as soon as somebody uh, sends it, like you have two miners in the system, you have one miner running version two and the other miner running version three, then one of the miners would consider a chain valid, the other would consider it invalid. That would definitely be a chain split. Right, but I don't know if you'd classify it as a hard fork. It's definitely bad. Well, th that makes sense what you just said. Yeah. Uh, anyways, the bottom line is Opfair was never used at all, so that's why it's it's uh it wasn't actually a hard well, fork. Well, it was it never used in the history of the blockchain that we're currently aware of. Uh, fair point. Next one is the separation of the evaluation of the script sig and script pub key. Yeah, that was funny. It used to be that you could just take anybody's Bitcoin. And, and now you can't take anybody's Bitcoin. Though I would say that's a soft fork. Be yeah, that, that also sounds like a soft fork, doesn't it? Yeah, but there may again be it, a, but, uh, a, a subtlety similar to what we just talked about. Right. But yeah, it used to be that I think if your script, uh, anywhere in your script had op return into it, it would just say, okay, I guess the script is valid. And then the, the person spending your coins could say, okay, I'm just going to start my uh, uh, script with op return and I'm going to take your coins now. Anyways, this was clearly a bug and it was also never used. So therefore, it's in this category of, you know, hypothetical hard forks that never happened and therefore arguably weren't a hard fork at all. Then we have the critical inflation bug. 
of Bitcoin Core 15. So this was relative recently. Yeah, that was funny. You, you remember that one, I think? Yep. Um, so the, basically there was a bug in introduced in 0.15 that would have allowed inflation, but only if your node was still running. So if a miner produced a block with inflation, your node would accept it. But if you, I think if you shut down the node and, and have it sync again, it would not. So it was, uh, it would definitely create confusion. Um, so that, yeah, and that rule was later removed. So you could say the, to allow inflation is, is, you know, creating the risk of a hard fork, but since nobody actually produced inflation and the rule was then removed, uh, nothing happened. Yeah, it was fixed in September 2018. So for three years, people could have created inflation on Bitcoin. Yeah, and my guess is they would have created chaos on Bitcoin. But I don't think um, that those newly created coins would have ever been stored in any of the longest chains. Yeah, f fair enough. Anyways, it was never the bug was never abused uh, and it was fixed and therefore it's also one of these hypothetical hard forks that never actually happened and therefore arguably weren't a hard fork at all then the last one uh, we actually made an episode about this one this is burying soft forks BIP yep. 90 that was episode 54 yeah so I think what burying soft forks does is it, it basically says that the rules um, the, say with SegWit for example, which has been buried at least in uh, Bitcoin Core software, I think in others too. Um, if there ever was an alien race creating a reorg back to the Genesis block, those new blocks would have to follow SegWit. And so if you have an old node um, that didn't care about SegWit, it might actually accept a different chain as valid as the new nodes. Uh, yeah. Again, isn't that a soft fork? Yeah, but it would create a hard fork, I guess, from the old nodes. I guess I would tend to agree with you again. That does sound more well, like a software. Well, it's possible that the aliens create two chains, right? So they create one very long chain that does not obey SegWit. And the old nodes would think that's fine. And then it would create a shorter chain that does obey SegWit. And the new nodes would, would go for that one. So then the old nodes would be uh, following a different chain. So I guess you would say that's a hard fork. Or at least it's a chain split. Yeah, well, we discussed this in full in episode 54, as I mentioned, and why it's debatable whether this is a risk that should be taken. And and whether the uh, fact of the alien invasion is perhaps a higher priority. A higher priority than Bitcoin? Than trying to fix that particular issue with SegWit rules. In case it wasn't clear, this also never happened, and it's impossible to ever become a real problem, because like you said, we would need a very long reorg, etc., etc., so these were the hypothetical hard forks that were never actually triggered and therefore arguably shouldn't be considered a hard fork at all. Then we get to the implicit consensus change, the implicit hard fork, so which was essentially a bug, but which did trigger a hard fork. That's uh, the... Have we discussed this on an episode? Yeah, we've brought it up a few times. So basically, a yeah, difference in database uh, oh, well, we, we discussed this on the previous uh, episode where we discussed one of James and Lobs' blog posts running, uh, syncing old Bitcoin nodes, I think. So that was episode 55. Yeah, and I think we've so, covered it earlier too. Of dependencies. and yep. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this was BIP50 where, uh, let's see, Bitcoin Core 8, yep. 8.0, 0.8 uh, became incompatible with previous versions due to a dependency on the Berkeley DB database. Is that right? Yeah. So I think what happened is um, the original version of 0.7, etc., worked used Berkeley 
the Berkeley database, and and it configured the Berkeley database with some limitations. And I think one of the limitations was uh, was basically boiled down to a maximum number of transactions that could fit in a block, like 10,000. And then it was Bitcoin Core was upgraded to a new database format that did not come with any of those limitations. So basically, once as soon as you produce a block with more than, I think, 10,000 transactions, the old nodes would say, hey, this is not a valid... Um, uh, this is not a valid block. And then the new notes would say, no, it's perfectly fine. And there was never intended to be that type of limit on the number of transactions. It was just a configuration of the database that, you know, wasn't thought through well enough that it would have that implication. Or at least as far as we know, because I don't think Satoshi ever documented saying, hey, by the way, this this little limit in the database is important. Yeah, so this was a bug based on a dependency, essentially, and this one did actually trigger a hard fork and also an actual change split. So for a couple of hours, for about five hours, there were two incompatible Bitcoin blockchains. Yeah, exactly, That's and people actually had to come to consensus very quickly uh, to decide which which side to go for. Yeah, so and the side they went for was the previous blockchain, the, the non-hard fork blockchain, essentially. So now if you look at the Bitcoin blockchain, there's no trace of a hard fork happening, right? But there was for a short that's, time, that's for right. five so, hours. So I think the decision was to use the old rules, to keep using the old rules, even though these old rules were accidental, to keep using those accidental rules for a while, but then later on to relax them. And then right. it turns into one of those uh, p potential hard forks where it could have happened, but nobody actually triggered the condition. Uh, no, they were triggered later. That That's what uh, Lop explains in the blog post. So... Um, Oh, right, even, yes. Even pause om dat uh, goed op te zoeken. No, I think you're right. It was triggered later, that's, I think. That's right. So, well, it was triggered immediately, but that part of history has been removed. And then, uh, but because it was unexpected and people wanted to have some time to regroup and, and think about what to do about it. But then later on, the rules were uh, relaxed to actually allow basically whatever size, uh, whatever number of transactions would actually fit into the uh, limit of the block. And that eventually ended up happening. So there was a time when if you were still running that old version of the node, you would not have accepted the new blocks. And then you had the choice between either upgrading to the new node version or changing one uh, configuration. So why was that never a problem? Was it never a problem because everyone upgraded by no, then? No, it, it was a problem if you didn't change that configuration, your node would be in trouble. So that's why you had some amount of time to do that. That was new to me, actually. I didn't know that. And I don't think it was very long either. It was probably a month. Yeah, it seems like a bit more than a month. But um, so well, you, you you had a month to do the upgrade. Um, that was when the safety net went away. But before somebody actually produced a block that big, might have been longer. Okay, sure. The thing is, zero point eight point zero was uh, was released in March. That that's when the accidental split happened, and then. Shortly thereafter, Bitcoin 0.8.1 was released, which had uh, some uh, virtual limits to prevent the blockchain from splitting. This expired in May, but then the first time it was triggered was in September 2013. But then it only sort of triggered it compared to Bitcoin Core 0.5 nodes, 0.5 nodes and earlier. And then a couple of years later, in 2015, 
it was triggered again, and this time it affected Pico Core 6 and 7 nodes. Yeah, so it turns That's out there were uh, probably several database changes that were relevant here. Yeah, but what exactly. kind of surprises me in, in what Lop found is that, well, so there was a new version of Bitcoin Core release and it immediately caused problems. Like it immediately caused a fork. Then some measures were taken, but apparently nothing else happened that could have caused that fork in three years. So that's odd because well, you, well, you think that the, the, the reason it went wrong is because miners were quite eager to produce bigger blocks um, that immediately violated those rules. And, the, and then they didn't for a while. Well, it was triggered twice. So it was triggered once after six months in respect to older Bitcoin nodes, Bitcoin Core nodes 0.4 and 5 and earlier. And, yeah, then, but, and then three years later to Bitcoin nodes 6 and 7, essentially. Yeah, exactly. If, if but the, 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 first, the first hard fork event there, or the first forking event, was, was against the 0.7 nodes. So whatever the rule was that was violated for 0.7 nodes was violated once immediately after the release, and then only three years later. Right, yeah. So, so that tells me that maybe miners were extra careful for a while to just stick to the old rules, even though they, they didn't have to. Uh, so maybe miners just didn't upgrade to 0.8.1 for three years. That's possible. Um, they just didn't want that to happen again. That makes sense. Anyways, that was the one example that Jameson found for an implicit hard fork so a yeah, hard so fork that wasn't yeah, yeah unintentional then finally we get well in fact it, it actually the, the the thing he did was enabling soft forks so yeah he was clearly thinking about it that's she wanted those new rules i don't think it was intentional in that he wanted to split the network but we can well get to and, that. It, and it didn't split the network but maybe this was back at a time where people weren't even thinking as much about hard forks or soft forks is, is that what you're saying yes or he didn't but, realize but he was thinking was about it fork. because this was exactly the same time when he was working on the block size limit decrease which was a soft fork in which he did in a very careful way so my guess is that he he did want to add this new feature did probably not realize that it was a hard fork well, in fact, it, it actually, the, the, the thing he did was enabling soft forks. So yeah, he was clearly thinking about it. Bec that's Yeah, he, was, he, he wanted the feature, he wanted to enable future soft forks. Exactly, but I don't yeah. think he realized he committed a hard fork in the process. In doing so, yeah. yeah. So the change is the addition of up knob functions. Yes. So what are up knob functions? They're awesome. <laughs> well, uh, basically, they are um, codes that do nothing. Uh, no operation is what no op stands for. Uh, so it's op no op, essentially. Mm -hmm. So what would happen is if your Bitcoin Core node sees those instructions, if an old version of Bitcoin Core, say today's version, sees op nop, it'll just say, okay, whatever, and moves on with the script. Uh, but a new version may actually attach meaning to it and may say, well, it's not necessarily always valid. There may be some rules in which it's not valid. So this makes it easy to have this thing where new nodes have more strict interpretations of the rules than old nodes. Yeah, so this is, for example, used in Segwit, I think, Taproot, like the, these kinds of... Um, nope. No, it doesn't... Uh, it's only, not, used, not it's Segwit, only right? been used for uh, check, time lock, verify. So anyways, what Abnop does, if you're an older node, you just ignore it. But if, you, if you're a newer node, then potentially you add extra meaning to it. For example, you see a time lock. Yeah. Right. And so where the hard fork aspect comes in here is that if you look at very old nodes, namely before Satoshi introduced these codes... Mm -hmm. If they would see that in the script, they wouldn't see opnop, right? So a script is just a series of numbers. Uh, basically, you know, they're 
the bytes. So byte is 8-bit, so there's 256 possible things that a byte can be. And every one of those things has uh, maps to an opcode. So if the byte says 10, then, or if the byte says 100, then maybe that's opnop, right? So that's how it works. There's a it's called an enum, an enumerator. So you, you basically say, when I see a number, I'm going to interpret that as a special meaning. The problem was there was no meaning for those values that opnop uses. So if an opnop occurred in a script, the very old node would say, hey, I don't know what this, this number means. I'm now going to declare the whole script invalid. Right. It wouldn't just ignore it. It would just say, I don't know what this is. This cannot be a valid transaction because I don't know what this is. Yeah. So, so if you were to run a Bitcoin node before Satoshi introduced these opnops, then as soon as it did see an opnop, it would think that transaction is invalid, but future nodes would consider it valid. Uh, and that would basically fork them off the network. Right. So then the next point is when this actually happened. Uh, and so as we just mentioned, the first soft fork that actually used this was CLTV. That mm -hmm. was the time lock that Peter Todd designed at the time. But apparently it was used, it was. It can be found in the blockchain even before that. So even before it was opnop, any opnop code was attributed to anything, Yeah. there is an example of it in the blockchain, right? Yes, because everybody is free to use opnop whenever they want to in their crazy experiments. It doesn't do anything. But in practice, most of the time, nobody did that. Except one day, somebody was experimenting with the design of a different software proposal and actually decided to use this opnop too in their experiment for this future soft fork. And so that would have caused an actual hard fork event had somebody still run the 0.3.5 or older nodes. Yeah, that was actually Luke Jr. Uh, if, uh, yep. t tinkering with uh, BIP17, which was sort of a competitor to in any case, if you look at if you if you use the block explorer, then the block explorer will say, "Oh, this transaction used opnop two, or sorry, this transaction used opctlv." But of course, opctlv did not exist at the time uh, of that transaction because your block explorer probably doesn't know which opcodes existed at which time in the past. So if your block explorer was really smart, it would say, "Okay, it was this opcode," but back then it had no meaning. So your block explorer really should say it was opnop two uh, at the time the transaction was made. Yeah, so somebody used uh, Luke, I guess, used Opnop2. Luke Jr. is responsible for the first and only sort of real hard fork in Bitcoin's history. That we the know first, of. The first explicit one, let's put it that way. That we know of. There's, there may be many more because you'd really have to inspect what the very old Bitcoin core code would do or Bitcoin code would do under circumstances. And a lot of changes were made in the beginning. Anyways, I think that concludes our... Uh, overview, right? So yeah, we've, we've discussed five hard forks that never actually triggered, of which some of us, uh, some of them, we were struggling to figure out why they were actually considered hard forks in the first place. Yep. And then one implicit hard fork, which was essentially a bug, and then one explicit one, which was the addition of OpNop. That's right. And we, I guess we could do some philosophy, but I think we've covered enough for now. So I'm kind of curious to hear your philosophy now. Well, the question is, you know, what do you want to do in the future with, with hard forks and bug fixes and stuff like that? But I think we can get into that another time. Let, let's get into long. it, George. We're here uh, now. I'm here now. I'm not in a rush. Well, um, so yeah. So what was interesting about this um, this OpNop uh, hard fork 
is that it was introduced in version 0.3.6. And that version also contained some sort of emergency fix. And so one of the reasons you, you want to avoid hard forks is that it forces everybody to upgrade at the same time. But in this case, everybody is upgrading at the same time anyway because there's like a massive bug. And so then the philosophical question, or even the governance question is, mm. you know, if you have some hard fork in mind, do you just wait for the next emergency fix and then just do it anyway? Or not? Because you you know, you know could argue against that, of course. Yeah, there's something called a hard fork wish list, right? The, yeah. These are changes to the Bitcoin protocol that are assumed to only be possible with a hard fork. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is, we definitely need to do a hard fork in the future, it looks like, because there's a bug uh the the time value overflow yeah, bug there, there is a problem but that's probably only in 2106 uh that that actually needs to be fixed right uh from what it looks like right now and so you could say well, well it's better know, to fix it earlier right yeah so the idea is that well yeah so that when you're fixing it earlier you can think about these things but you could imagine that some emergency problem shows up that we didn't anticipate and that requires a hard fork to fix otherwise all of bitcoin is completely destroyed so right? your your question i think is if we're gonna do a hard fork anyways would it better would it be better to you know package it together with other hard forks we want to do that that's kind of the point right that's the question and i think one answer to that could be uh, no you do not want to sneak in any other hard you definitely don't want to sneak in any other hard forks mm-hmm. I guess you could have a long, long-standing debate where this hard fork wish list is actually implemented and ready to go, and said like, okay, this works. We're we're absolutely sure it's safe, but we're not going to deploy it until there is some other emergency. So you could have some agreement like, okay, when some emergency happens that requires a hard fork, shove this other thing in it, um, because that finishes our hard fork wish list, and you know, might as well use an emergency to uh, as an opportunity to fix things. But you you generally want to be careful about you know, when people have to upgrade, you don't want to trick them into accepting new rules that are not in their interest. Um, yeah, I think everyone agrees that a hard fork needs consensus. Just even if you want to, you know, co- package it together, it still needs consensus. Yeah. Because otherwise, someone else might say, okay, we're just going to fix this bug, but we're not going to do the other hard fork, and then you still have a chain split. So hard fork just needs consensus, whether you're packaging it or not, I think. Yeah. The tricky thing with a hard fork requiring consensus is that some people don't want a hard fork for the sake of not wanting a hard fork. Mm-hmm. So that makes it pretty difficult to get consensus on a hard fork ever. Yes. But then maybe the packaging thing kind of works because that argument sort of falls apart for you know the, the argument that you don't want a hard fork for the sake right. of Right, if it. you're saying you never want a hard fork for the sake of having a hard fork, Except when it's an emergency, then you could say, well, okay, if there is an emergency one day, here's the, the extra stuff we'll do, you know, as right. part of dealing with that emergency. Yeah. Um, though my guess is if there really is an emergency, there's not going to be time to combine it with anything else. Just well, in the, in the example that you gave, there's an emergency in 100 years from now, or what is well, that's, it? That's, that's exactly, that's not now. an emergency. That is basically something we know is going to happen. And so you can debate a hard fork uh, long before that moment, you could say, well, okay, we all agree on what the hard fork is going to look like. We're going to deploy it, you know, in, in five years. And then that deployment will be sitting there for 50 years, not doing anything. And in 50 years time, everybody will have upgraded to something that enforces the new rules. Yes. Um, the point being, if you need a hard fork for sure, then it 
maybe actually does make sense to package things together with that hard fork if they have consensus with the exception from the people that don't want a hard fork for the sake of it because their argument will fall apart when you have to do a hard fork anyways. yeah so in the case of the 21 or 16 you could say okay you know what in uh, maybe 30 years time you know what's that that's 2050 maybe we should have that should have a hard fork in place to fix that bug that's only due in 2106 and then we'll we'll add the rest of the hard fork wish list to it which will only take effect in 2106 because it's not that urgent something like that right okay i think at this point we're really digressing that so sounds- it's, it's time to cut this off sounds good thank you for listening to bitcoin explained